0: Good morning, everyone. Bonjour. Joy San for the Chinese people uh, that are in this congregation. It's wonderful to be with you. Uh, my name is Roger, as Ryan has said, uh, part of the Bosch PM congregation. Uh, they'll see a little picture of my, my wife up there, my little kid. That's my wife. She's, uh, I call her Bobby. Sometimes people say we're Barbie and Chen. And uh, I'm in the business world. I don't often make profits, but I made a little profit there. His name's Elijah, <laughs> my little kiddio. So together we serve in the eldership team in um, the Bosch PM congregation. I'm full-time in the business world, six days a week, and for night shift I'm a dad. And um, part-time gig is preaching on a Sunday. So I'm very stoked to be with everyone here. If you're a first-time visitor, big welcome to you. I hope that you enjoy the next little while with us, and hopefully after you're going to be able to have some coffee with some people and um, hang out a bit. Uh, just to catch you up, we're in the um, week two of a series called "Mark," and we're going through Mark chapter one. And the mega-theme of this series is the good news at last. And last week, when Caleb was here, he would have preached about um, John the Baptist and John the Baptist talking about the Jesus to come. He would have spoken about John the Baptist heralding the Son of God who was still to arrive. He was going to be the one who's going to talk about something still on the horizon. Now, if um, last week was about the good news anticipated, this week is the good news has arrived. Last week was the good news anticipated. This week is the good news has arrived. Now, I know that's, that's going to be like my overarching theme uh, is that he's arrived. But the real point, um, the major idea that I'm wanting us to be able to take home this morning um, is the idea that we must keep our eyes Gazed on Jesus, or keep your gaze upon Jesus. So, I'm hoping that as we go through, continue your mind will be resting over that. And in a while, we're going to go through a whole packet of scripture. Um, for those of you that are theologically astute and hungry, um, I'm going to do a bit of a setup of conversation and then we're going to jump into some scripture. Now, um, for me, when I hear good news, I often get quite excited, And not talking about good news in the church context, often at work there's always chaos and there always seems to be something wrong, we deal with ESCOM and not having power and there are going to be unions and all that sort of thing and so often amongst our leadership team in our business, I'll ask them the question, what good news do you have? And when they give me good news, it injects something of energy inside of me. It gives me new strength, new hope. I'm like, okay, there's a whole lot of stuff going on, but I can continue carrying on going. But I have to confess, whenever I hear the good news in a church context or the gospel, my, my brain kind of goes, oh, I know this message already. Been there, done that. Been a Christian for many years. Jesus died for my sins. Now I have eternal life. Thank you. you know, and, and my heart kind of goes a bit, a little bit dull, I uh, don't if you know that um, kindergarten story about the kindergarten teacher that speaks to a whole lot of children and says, what's brown fairy and runs up trees? And the little girl puts her hand up and says, the answer is Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel. <laughs> uh, I think sometimes my mind kind of goes, there. I'm like, okay, I know how this whole thing works out. And I realize that my heart is actually sometimes just a bit dull um, to the gospel, that I, I see a bit of a, a disconnect. I, I read the Bible and, and I know the theology, but I don't experience the theology. I know the Bible and I realize I don't experience what the people of the Bible experience. There's a disconnect. I'm like filled with awe and filled with rejoicing as I hear the good news. But I see that that's what's supposed to be in the Bible. And maybe you can relate. Maybe you can find yourself in the same place where you go, shucks, I've possibly been a Christian for many years. Maybe you're not a Christian. You're still exploring the faith. And the good news hasn't always evoked it inside of you. Perhaps you, you, you've got this block like I often do, is when a guy starts talking about the good news, I give him five minutes. I'm like, in five minutes, you've got to impress me, otherwise I'm going on my cell phone. You know, there's a sense of, of, of going, I know what's going to happen. And so what I'm hoping is that over the next while, we're going to find an answer to how do I keep the burning fire of Jesus inside of me, a real one, one that ascends just theology, one that ascends just intellectual understanding of how to be a Christian, one that penetrates the heart that touches us deeply, that we're moved by it, not just moved by our thinking. But what I want to do is I want to share a personal story with you that will hopefully soften your hearts to receive the Scripture that we're about to read. Sometime last year in November, um, uh, I got a phone call from my uncle. This is my uncle that, you know, you've got that family member that you've known for years and very close to. He was one of those. He was my uncle that I'd grown up with that used to come down um, in Christmas from from Johannesburg. And we'd speak on the phone every month for a couple of hours. Really close to him. But he was also a Buddhist. Um, that's my family background, you know, a, a Dad was an, a functioning atheist Buddhist. Mom was totally everything that goes. She was feng shui, which is structure, household, so there's energy fields, numerology, palm reading, zodiacs, horoscopes, the whole thing, crystals, the whole vibe, anything that, anything that sounds spiritual, my mother was it. And my uncle grew up in that world. He was a Buddhist. And so I got the call on the Friday to say that uh, he, he was unable to move. His, his back was really sore, so they booked him into hospital. By Monday morning, my cousin uh, phoned me and said, um, your uncle, our uncle's been diagnosed with aggressive stage four cancer in his spine. And it spread through his entire body. He said, he's got a couple of days to live. You better get up here. So me and my sister started fasting, started praying. We, we could feel the nudge of God saying, I want him, I want him, I want him. He is someone I want, meaning my uncle. And we, we felt this nudge of the father pushing us out of our hearts. So we prayed and we, we flew up on the Tuesday. By the Wednesday, we managed to um, get into the room where it was just us and none of the other family. And I told my, my wife, please just you know, g- g- occupy the family so I can just chat with my uncle for this moment. Then in this moment, that Now that he's on his deathbed, and he literally was just emaciated, just skin and bones. His, his teeth had changed color from the chemicals. He couldn't focus on me. He was like half glazed over and just whispers of words that came out of his mouth at a time. And I said to my uncle, I said, um, you know that I'm a Christian. You know, I told you before that Jesus loves you. have never been able to engage fully with him around Jesus. And I said, like, what do you think about Jesus? And I'm hoping that now on his deathbed, there's going to be something in his heart that says, yeah, I believe in Jesus, and his reply was this. He said, Roger, I grew up a Buddhist. I'm going to stay a Buddhist. I'm a good man. Roger, I know it's not the answer that you want, but it is who I am. And my heart dropped in that moment. I was just like, I, just, I was devastated. I was like, God, that, that, that sense that God wanted him to know him, the sense that the Spirit of God was wanting to draw him near. And I just sitting going, God, but he's, he's just saying No. My uncle starts talking about energy fields and power and the supernatural. A lot of Buddhism is about the yin and the yang and the chi. And he talks about different, our, our different ancestors vibrating at different levels. And, and in a moment, I feel God kind of throw a line into my head and I say, Hey, uncle, all that stuff's true. The supernatural's true. The, all the vibrations of energy, it's true. But there's a higher supernatural power. That's Jesus. There's a higher power that's created all those other stuff. That's Jesus. He's the one that's made and manifests all the things of the spiritual realm. That's Jesus. I remember he he turned and looked at me. Uh, There was something of of a tension that had gripped his his mind. And so I I began to lean into that moment. And I told him, hey, I know that you have bitterness. He said a lot of bitterness in his life. He said, you know, a lot of bitterness in your life. A lot of anger, a lot of hatred toward people. There's been a lot of self-centeredness, a lot of just deep thoughts about your own world. And the Bible calls that Sin. And Jesus comes to remove that sin, and he puts in place of that his nature, his spirit, his righteousness, the very essence of he, who he is. He pours inside of you. And I got to speak to him more about the father that loves him. And I just felt that in that moment, just God resting on him, saying, I love him, I love him. And in one little weird moment, I felt like this little mini jolt of electricity go over my hand as I felt the Holy Spirit kind of give me a nudge saying, do it, Roger, go for it. So I asked my uncle, I said, do you want Jesus? And my uncle looked at me, now focused, and said, yes, I want him. Fifty minutes ago, he was like, no, I'm a Buddhist, it's not the answer you want, that's is how I am. But in that moment, he saw something of Jesus. So I said to my uncle, well, let's pray. We can ask Jesus into, into your life. He said, I don't know how to pray. So I said, well, do a repeat after me pray. I'll pray and then, then you pray. And so he, we prayed that Jesus would take away sin, all his rubbish, and put, put the nature of Christ inside of him, the life and the power of Jesus in him. And as he was praying, tears started coming down his eyes. Tears started coming down his eyes as I watched him. And afterwards, he, he opened his eyes and he looked at me and he just said, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I, I wanted to know more, so I said, I said Uncle, Uncle Uncle Tao, what did you experience? Uh, and in the, in the Buddhist sort of culture, we, we have a lot of supernatural, things often quite physical and real. And he just said to me, as he was lying, he just said, warm, warm, my body, it's warm, it's warm. Somehow God graciously, doesn't always do it, but somehow graciously in that moment, God would speak to a Buddhist man. They would once deny him 15 minutes before, and then in that moment would allow him to feel the warmth of Jesus right over him in that moment. My uncle saw Jesus. The Jesus that was anticipated became Jesus that had arrived. His eyes began to be fixed on Jesus. Four days later, he passed away. And while everybody was, was mourning and in uh, and crying, I was worshiping, knowing that he was dancing in heaven with our Father. That, that, that story was really a setup for the Scripture that I want us to read today. Because what he saw was something what we see in Scripture, except sometimes what we see in Scripture doesn't evoke the same response that my uncle experienced in that moment. And so if you've got your Bibles, we're going to turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 9 to 13. And the question that's going to be asking inside of your heart is, how do I live a life that, that is full of the fire of God? How do I live a life where you can be like my uncle who has a a gaze fixed on Jesus that doesn't last for a month or two, but lasts perennially through your life? And I believe that we're going to find that answer of keeping your eyes gazed on Jesus or gazing on Jesus is going to be something we're going to find in the scripture. So let me give you the setup. Uh, It's been years of nothing. John the Baptist has spoken about Jesus to come. He's spoken about uh, this Messiah that's about to arrive. And um, you can imagine it's uh, by the Jordan River, it's musky and hot and dirty ground, cold water, and John is just diligently baptizing disciple after disciple after disciple. And then Jesus arrives on the shores of the Jordan River. And he walks up to John the Baptist, and this is where we pick up. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. That's the scripture. It's a well-known scripture. We've seen it often, and I'm hoping over the next while, as we unpack it line by line, blow by blow, we'll be able to see something else that the people. Of the Bible, we're seeing as Jesus arrived on those shores. So, the first thing we look at um, is baptism. Uh, I highlighted in blue so you guys know where I'm pointing at. Jesus goes up to John the Baptist um, to get baptized, and he does get baptized. And I know the question that some of you might be asking is, well, why did Jesus get baptized? We know that baptism is an outward sign of an inward change inside of us. It. It's something we do symbolically to show that we've repented and we've been forgiven of our sins and turned toward Jesus, right? Jesus didn't do it for that reason. Jesus had a very different reason for baptism. In fact, John, when in the account of Matthew, asks the very same question of Jesus. Jesus comes up and says, you've got to baptize me. John says, no, you shouldn't baptize me. I should be baptized by you. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right. But for now, baptize me so I can fulfill all righteousness. See, Jesus came um, not just to... Uh, live out life and set an example, but he can't fulfill all the law and the, and, the, uh, and the commands in the Bible. There's 613 Old Testament commands. Uh, it falls under the title called the Mosaic Law, the Law of Moses. Every Jewish people had to fulfill all of these commands, 613 of them. And in Deuteronomy, even further back in the Old Testament, there literally is a list that says, if you, if you um, obey, 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 you'll be blessed, 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 But if you disobey, you'll be cursed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. There's this whole lineage uh, of obeying and disobeying. And so Jesus comes to a place where he goes and fulfills all the Mosaic law. And what you'll notice is baptism isn't a new thing. It's not a Christian thing. It was going on way before. Part of the Jewish world was something called ceremonial cleansing. It's something that you just did as a symbol of purity before the Father. And that was part of the 613 commands. And so Jesus ends up doing that, not because he needs forgiveness of sins, but because he's going to complete every single one of the commands so that there can be full, 100% blessings, so that it can be 100% righteous. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says, We, as Christ followers, have received every spiritual blessing in Christ. We have received every spiritual blessing in Christ. Why? And not just because, oh, here's blessing. The reason why we receive every spiritual blessing in Christ is because we're in Christ. And Christ has fulfilled all the law and so is 100% righteous. You get it? Jesus has hit every single marker, 100% righteous. He's nothing like us. His heart is nothing like us. When our hearts might sometimes think about ourselves or might have a horrible thought about someone else or always about our future, Jesus doesn't have that inside of him. He is not like us, 100% righteous in his nature. He fulfills all the law so that all blessings can come on in, so that we can live in Ephesians 1 world where every spiritual blessing that we have is in Christ. And so there's a righteousness that is declared when Jesus is on the cross, I mean, when Jesus is baptized. But it doesn't end there. Jesus' baptism supersedes us. He still calls us to to be baptized. But our baptism is baptism into Jesus so that we can be under the blessing of 100% righteousness. Uh, That's why it says in, in Romans that we've been baptized with him then into his death. And if we've been baptized into his death, then we've been resurrected with Christ also. You guys might notice that when you've been baptized into Jesus, we've been baptized with Jesus into death so that we can also be resurrected with Christ when Christ is raised. In a couple of weeks' time, I don't know when it is again, that there's going to be an opportunity for baptism. That baptism moment is a moment where Jesus is saying, join me in baptism, die with me and be resurrected with me. It's not a curt thing that you just do. It's not something that we just do as a traditional Christianity. It is something that Jesus commanded. because He says, your life, in my life, you die with me, you resurrected with me. There's something that becomes powerfully proclaimed in baptism. And so we see in this moment, as the people watch Jesus, they're not just seeing a baptism. They're witnessing Jesus fulfill all the law and the prophets so that 100% righteousness and blessing comes upon him. And they're watching, and they're watching, and they're watching. That's the first thing they see. The second thing we see is in the next verse. And when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. And we're not talking about like a nice sunset hue or champagne colors coming over the Seapoint Promenade or like in the light just gently drifting on him. We're talking about torn. This is a strong word. It is torn. The word there is actually schizo, where we get the word schizophrenia. It's an intense um, separating. It's, it's a breaking open. Something irreparable. It, it is uh, very, very direct and, and intentful. And in that place, there is a tearing of heaven before Jesus. The other place you see the word torn now, as the call shared early on is in that verse where it says, Jesus died and when he was resurrected, all the people that had long ago died also got resurrected. And the curtain was torn in two. The word there "schizo," torn. And we're not talking about a, a curtain from, you know, Mr. Price home or Sheet Street. We're talking about a curtain, a couple of inches thick, a couple of meters high. It's more like a brick wall. This thing got torn and that curtain separated the holy of holies where the very presence of God was and where everybody else was. And so at the end of his ministry, the beginning of the ministry, Jesus represents something of the tearing of heaven that we might enter in. And that's why in Hebrews it says that beautiful line. It says, Jesus enters into the most holy place, not made by man, that he can represent us in the presence of the Father. That Jesus enters into the holy place, one not made by man, but in heaven, that we can enter in, and he represents on our behalf in the Father's presence. There is something about the tearing of heaven that is magnificent, that is powerful. And people behold it. And it should cause something in our hearts to say the Jesus we serve isn't just the Jesus of the Bible that we just look in printed form. He's Jesus where heaven has opened open. He is supernatural, both in his humanity and in his deity combined in one. And you kind of think, oh, the story just ends there, it's gonna crescendo down. It just takes another step further. We see that the Bible carries on to say that the spirit descends on him like a dove. And the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Jesus sees this. Now, I know when we see the Spirit, we kind of go, okay, I've been to church, and I see the Holy Spirit thing. I hear Terry Virgo is coming, um, and he speaks about the Spirit, and you might have seen it on TV. But the Spirit coming on people was very, very different. It wasn't a, a usual experience. It happened very, very seldomly. When Moses was called to free the, the, the Israelites from Egypt, the Holy Spirit came on him. It came to, to the degree that when he needed to multiply um, leaders, the Bible says that God took some of the Spirit that was on Moses and put it on the other elders and they began to prophesy. When Joshua went into the promised land, it says that the Spirit came upon him so that he could do that purpose. When Gideon with 300 men fought 135,000 Midianites and destroyed them, it says the Lord put his Spirit on him. When Samson, the guy with the long hair and the mighty strength, destroys uh, many Philistines with the jawbone of the bunkie, uh, bunkie, a donkey, it <laughs> says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And most significantly is old David from David and Goliath. We see him fighting David and Goliath, but when he's a young little boy, Samuel comes and anoints him. And the Bible, the exact words of the Bible say that the Spirit came on him powerfully. The Spirit came on people in the Bible... For very specific reasons, chosen, anointed kings, leaders, rulers for a very specific purpose of extending the kingdom of God and establishing something new. And so when they saw the Spirit coming upon Jesus, they went like, oh, Holy Spirit. They said, he is the chosen one, the anointed one. Something has come upon him for a chosen purpose. And even in that place of seeing the Holy Spirit, they would have observed that it came down like a dove, you know, you see that pictures of, of uh, stained glass windows, the dove and Jesus with the lamb, and it looks all beautiful. And I often kind of look at him like a dove. Like, I thought it'd be like, I call the, the Holy Spirit the hammer of heaven. You know, when I read the book of Acts, I see whenever the Holy Spirit comes, there's, there's absolute power of people that don't know Jesus come to know Jesus. Entire cities are turned upside down. But I read this, I'm going, hammer of heaven, little dove. A dove of peace, you know, wonderful symbol. And I used to think that until I, I read the scripture, in the Bible it says, Jesus soon crushes Satan. But it uses a different title. It says, the prince of something soon crushes Satan. It's not the prince of fire that crushes Satan. It's not the prince of of wind and power that crushes Satan. It's not the prince of glory that crushes Satan. The Bible says it's the prince of peace that soon crushes Satan. Jesus' peace is powerful. It is strong. It's not a power that exists because chaos is not around. It's a power that exists because it subdues chaos. He is the prince of peace because he can come into an area of life and he can bring peace. Even what chaotic things are going on in our lives, there's something where the overlay of Jesus comes. But his call over us is to fix our eyes on him. And Isaiah has this beautiful scripture. It says, he whose mind is stayed on God walks in perfect peace because he trusts in him. When your mind is stayed on God, there's a sense where the peace of God can prevail no matter what goes on in your life. And I know some of you guys are going through some difficult stuff either in relationships, in your marriage, someone in your family might be dying, something going on with your kids. No matter what that is, there's a place where we don't hold those things high. We keep our gaze upon Jesus, that we see him as the Prince of Peace and allow the Prince of Peace to subdue the chaos around us. And those people are seeing that, seeing the hammer of heaven come down as a spurt, but the spurt, sorry, coming down as a dove, but the Prince of Peace is being anointed in that place. And in that moment, we kind of think, oh, the heaven's torn, the Spirit's come." people are hanging on their, on, on their seats going, what's going to happen next? Is it just going to calm down? And then you have the crescendo of the moments, that high pitch in the musical um, play. The line comes where the Father speaks from heaven, and he says that line, and a voice came from heaven, saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well-pleased. God reveals himself as father, not just creator, not just as judge, but as father. And he speaks to Jesus, my beloved son. You will never hear that title being bestowed upon any person in the Old Testament. Yeah, they've been spoken about he's he's a friend of God. He spoke to God face to face. He he heard the voice of God. But my beloved son just wasn't there. There, There's a level of intimacy that God bestowed upon Jesus that he hadn't bestowed upon anyone else. It, It becomes that wild moment where you see someone who's powerful and strong, and then you see the father who's, even, who's just as powerful and strong that backs him. In my, in my unsanctified days, if, if someone wanted to have a bit of a brawl with me, I'm like, yeah, okay, let's fight. And I, then, then I'd find out who their dad is, like some sort of you know, hardcore gangster or MMA fighter. I'd be like, okay, no, that's fine. You, you just go ahead. See you later. There's a sense that when I know the person's father who he's intimate with, I see that there's a strength of power that's there. And so Jesus gets proclaimed as my beloved son. He gets given them most intimate title. The God of heaven says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And all the people that are around watching are going, oh gosh, he's not just powerful. He's not just the anointed chosen one with, with the spirit that's come upon him. He is the son. He has the privileged position, the ear of the father into the very throne room of the father himself. And I'm hoping that that causes some stirring and it should. If you're a Christ father, this should cause a stirring inside of your heart to go, that is something that I need, something that I want. We see right after um, hearing the voice of God, we expect there's going to be some sort of inauguration, some sort of celebration. They're going to say, Jesus, you know, uh, just go to the left. We're going to have a massive party for you. You're going to get a couple of barrels of water. You're going to turn it into wine. You're going to do your thing. You know, there's going to be a whole celebration. But it doesn't happen. The very thing that happens is that Jesus gets driven by the Spirit in the wilderness. It says there in verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. It wasn't a he was led by the Spirit nicely. It was driven. It was intentional. It's the, the, the Greek word is actually thrust into the wilderness. Uh, and I noted something uh, so interesting in that verse. When, when, when Adam and Eve were in the garden uh, and they ruin it for all of us and they go into a place of sin, they're tempted and they conquered by sin. They are then driven into the wilderness because of their sin. In this moment, Jesus goes out into the wilderness, driven by the Holy Spirit, to conquer temptation and sin itself. He comes to redeem everything that Adam messed up for us. You have this beautiful positioning where where we hear that script that says Jesus was tempted in all ways, but yet he did not sin. That's where it started, right there. He was tempted in every way, but yet he did not sin. He goes toe-to-toe with the enemy, and he begins the work of destroying him. In fact, in, in, in the book of Acts, when they describe Jesus, they say, for the re- very reason that he came was to destroy the work of the enemy. You see it tipped in the book of Genesis. When um, you first see Satan arrive, it says, the, 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 offspring, the, the snake will, will, will bite the heel of the offspring, Jesus, but the offspring will crush the serpent's head. This becomes the beginning of that moment where Jesus becomes the devil destroyer. He becomes the Almighty One. And the people didn't see it then, but we see it in retrospect that He has authority of all power. And not only that, we have the moment. We even have the angels start ministering to Him. And when I get tired after a game of touch rugby or exhausted, you know, best thing I'm going to get is like you know a glass of water for my wife. You know, maybe if I'm lucky, I'll go get a waiter or a servant or something I to that like, to you know help me out. But Jesus gets angels administered to him. I mean, he is next level. He is operating on a plane that that is totally different to us. He's, He's very much like us in some ways, but he's totally unlike us in so many other ways. He has the voice of God announcing him as the beloved son. He has the hammer of heaven, the Holy Spirit coming upon him, declaring him as the prince of peace. He has heaven torn open as a future declaration of what he's going to do in removing all sin from this world for those that are in Christ Jesus. He becomes the righteous one in which all the blessings that we have is because we we die with him and we unite with him in baptism and raise with him. In that moment, people are watching and they are seeing something. As I've read that scripture, and we've gone to that portion of scripture... Hoping something's happening in your hearts. And there really are two options. Two options of what could be happening inside of your hearts. Option one, your thought might be, Jesus is dead, good news is not real, that's it. If that's true, if you're in a space of that space, well, two things. One, I'd love to converse with you to give you some compelling reasons of why I really believe Jesus is alive, both archaeological evidence or philosophical thoughts. I'd love to have the conversation. But we don't have a middle ground. Paul doesn't give us a middle ground in the Bible. He says this verse in Corinthians. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. He's basically saying everything. All our Christianity is nothing. All your Bible reading, all your small group going to, all your Sunday attendance, Everything, all your leadership, everything is nothing if Jesus didn't die and, raise, and get raised again. If the good news is not real, then this is all for nothing. Nothing, 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 nothing. He says we are, we are most to be pitied. There's no middle ground. There is an option too. The option two is that there's a declaration from our hearts that Jesus is alive. The good news is real. And what should happen is that we look at heaven being torn open. When we read Scripture and we see Jesus um, having the Spirit come on him, something should happen inside of our hearts that says, I want that, I need that, I hunger for that. Something inside of our hearts would be like my, my uncle would have seen something of the glory of Jesus in that moment. I know that that in my heart, I've gone through undulations in my my life as a Christian, where I'm like, close with God, and then I go through these moments where I'm just stressed, and there's just so much stuff going on, and I just kind of hear the good news, and I'm dulled out. Nothing of what something like my uncle experienced. But I refuse to live like that. We cannot live like that. I refuse to be a Christian for the long term, that hears the good news being preached, and, and is able to put it into a box is able to go five minutes, and if you can't impress me, then I'm out of it, who, who can read Scripture and still let it disappear, who becomes an expert in Christian leadership or an expert in Christian doctrine, but yet doesn't experience Christ himself. I, I, I refuse to be a person that understands theology, that can speak about theology, but doesn't experience my theology, that doesn't experience what the people of the Bible experience. There's a call inside of our hearts. We, we put that stuff aside. We don't say it's not necessary, but we say that it's not the number one. It's not the highest point of our life. A a little while ago, somewhere last year, end of last year, I was was in a space where, where work was incredibly difficult. I had some really tough pastorals. My uncle had passed away. And I was exhausted, and I just felt myself in my quiet times. I was like, okay, what am I going to do in my quiet times? I'm going to read my Bible. Should I study doctrine so I can, I can like, uh, deal with people doctrinally? Should I maybe listen to you, God, for what you want me to do so I can be ruthlessly obedient? Doing all these things. And in that time, I'd read a book called One Thing, a secular book. But the, the author basically asked you a question in every segment, segment of your life. What is the one thing you must do to make everything else easier or unnecessary? What's the one thing you must give yourself that will make the maximum impact, that everything else would almost just ride along? And we have to do it in all the different sectors, business, family, friends, etc. Eventually it came to spiritual and had to ask, what is the one thing that would make all the difference? Now, it didn't take me long to find the answer. It was in a scripture in Psalm 27 verse 4. It'll come up on the screen. It's written by David. In the middle of chaos, in the middle of war, he, he asks one thing of God and this is what he says, he says one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. He's, he's got all the options and just like us, he says this one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek. That I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I might gaze upon His beauty and seek Him in His temple. Everything else just quietens down around him. And I'm not saying that it's only Jesus and nothing else. I'm saying it's first Jesus. I think it's either in French or Latin, the word priority comes from the root word, root word prior, which actually means first. It doesn't mean first of many or first category. It means the first. Jesus comes first in our life. That's why we see it in Matthew 6. It says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will be added unto you. So it's not going, okay, well, family, whatever. Those are real, real things. Difficulty in relationships, if you're bringing on divorce, children that are sick, family members that are sick, maybe losing a job, maybe needing to find a new job, maybe business isn't great, maybe the economy's got down on you, maybe just mentally there's anxiety, depression. I'm not saying none of that. I'm saying it doesn't come first. It has got to come first. It's got to come first. There's got to be a consistency in our faith. What we see in the Bible causes something in our hearts to respond accordingly. And that response is to say, God, I leave everything else. I leave everything else, and I seek to gaze upon you, to look upon you. There's that wonderful song, which I'm not going to sing, but it's a well-known old one. It says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, looking to his wonderful face. And the things of this earth, they go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That is what we call to. That's how our hearts get warmed up. The question is, how do our hearts burn for Jesus? It's to keep your gaze on him. And it might take a while. It's kind of like going through mist. It might take a while. It might not be instant. But as you gaze on him, the mist begins to fade away. As you gaze on him, the ground begins to get firmer. As you begin to gaze at him, all the other noises just become softer and softer and softer. That is the way that we get through. There's a persistence of our heart to say, God, I choose to hunger after you, to experience and see you. In a couple of moments, I'm going to give some. I'm going to ask for two responses. I love it if the band could come up so long. I'm going to give me two responses. The first are for people that find themselves in a similar place to my uncle, my uncle who didn't know Jesus, that hadn't had all his sin removed and righteousness put inside of him. In a couple of seconds, I'm going to give you a space to respond and say, "I want Jesus like Roger's uncle received Jesus." I want the eternal life that Jesus gives. I want to entrust my life. I want to surrender my life, my will, my desires, my way of doing things. And I want to submit to say he is the supreme ruler. That he is the one upon whom heaven got torn open. He is the one that the prince of peace has been declared over him. He is the one that I submit under his rulership. So if you could close your eyes, just to give you a bit of privacy. If everyone could close their eyes. Just to give you a bit of privacy. If that's you, you might be feeling a tug on your heart. You might have come here um, not, not thinking much about Jesus. But in this moment, as you've heard that story, there might be a tugging in your heart. You go, no, nah, I want Jesus. I've never had him before, but I want Jesus. If that's you, I'd love it if you could raise your hand so I could agree with you in prayer. Wonderful. Okay, I see you at the back there. I'm really good with awkward silences. If you're in a place where you're going, I know that, that I've never had, thank you, but I see you in the front there. If you know in your heart you're going, I've been around, see you there, lady. You know in your heart you're going, I know that I haven't had Jesus, I haven't had sin removed, and I haven't had Jesus put his life inside of me, and you're going, I need that. If that's you, I'd love you to raise your hand. Wonderful. Now, oh, it's good four or five of us in that place. These moments, these, you can open your eyes. Oh, actually, we're going to (laughs) pray. Let's just pray. You can do a repeat after me prayer. I'll just pray a line. You can pray a line of just inviting Jesus into your life. Jesus, thank you that you love me and that you're for me. I choose today to give you all my sin and all my rubbish. And in return, I receive your new nature. I receive your righteousness. I receive the blessing of heaven. And I entrust my life to you. Father, I thank you that you love me and that you're for me. Holy Spirit, fill me with power that I, I can become like you. Wonderful. Guys, these moments are precious. Precious, precious, precious. I, I cannot explain to you how God in these moments saying, this is what it's about. It's not about the worship band. It's not about the preaching. not about the beautiful coffee. It is the moment that our hearts receive Jesus in that place. That is the high moment of this entire, entire meeting. It's the point of celebration. I said I was going to respond to two groups. That was the first group. The second group of people that have been Christians for a long time. And you might have been feeling dull. And I say that the way that we start that process of actually coming alive to God is to keep our eyes gazing on Jesus. Keep on gazing at Jesus. And the one way we can do that is by declarative singing, where we declare the truth of Jesus. This next song is called We Believe. And in We Believe, we declare things. We believe that Jesus Christ, we believe that he's resurrected. There's a whole lot of things. We speak about, we believe in the torn veil. And as you sing those things, let that be the beginning of a start where you decide with your heart to intentionally focus and make Jesus the one thing of your heart.